This podcast is part what? of the TPS Radio Sports Podcast Network what? at www.tpsradio.net. Pod, TPS Radio, Mike, James. For the next hour, we are not talking about Monday Night Raw. We're not talking about Friday Night Smackdown. We are not talking about Monday Night Nitro. We're not talking about Starcade. What are we talking about for our first Advent Calendar Christmas special, Mike? Well, first of all, Dave recording, 3rd of December. It's time to open the Advent Calendar window. Are you ready, James? I am ready, Mike. Let's see what we can find behind here. Okay, I've just got the calendar here. It's quite big. Okay, and just uh, just unwrap it a bit. Hang on. Uh, okay, and uh, I've got the first window here for or for the first one window we opened when we were recording it here in WWE Pod Towers. Are you ready? Are you ready? I'm ready. Uh, well, oh, you're ready. Am I'm I ready. ready. Am Are I you ready? ready? Are you, I, I hope you are. Well, let's hope so. Let's do it anyway, just in case, and see what we find inside. Okay, let's see. Uh, 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 okay, just got the flap here. Oh, James! Mike! You'll never believe what's behind the advent calendar window. What is that? It's ECW! <laughs> Extreme Championship Wrestling, or... Was it Eastern Championship Wrestling? East, yes, NWA Eastern Championship Wrestling originally. I mean, it's got here on Wikipedia, which is not the most reliable thing in the world. Formed April the 25th, 1992. Now, to be fair, to, to April the 4th, 2001, I will have to. The expertise in ECW definitely goes down to my co-host, Mike, who is, is has seen... A lot more ECW stuff than I ever have. I kind of got into it when they um, during this first one night stand, and that's when I started looking back. But as I understand, Mike, you were into it um, a bit before I was. Well, I actually, um, I actually got into ECW around. Well, obviously, the one night stand stuff was great, and I was into it a little bit before it folded. But when I really got into it was a. Few years ago, probably around I'm not sure when it was around 2008, maybe 2009. Oh, about the same well, time as One Night Stand, then, or even after. A bit afterwards, and what okay. got me into it was when I went on to eBay, bizarrely, and what I saw on eBay was um, what was it? I saw, I saw, I think it was was it 25 or 35, 25 ECW VHS videos for 35 pounds. And I snapped them up. I haven't eat. I've watched a lot of them. I've watched the same ones many times. I, I, I haven't got through them all, but also that, and also as we mentioned, ECW documentaries and such things. I don't know we did. I've watched an awful lot, and I think it's brilliant. Love ECW. Love it. I do. I really do. And let's see. Now, as you said, originally formed in 1992. As uh, Eastern Championship Wrestling. Yep. By Todd Gordon. Apparently there was a Tri-State Wrestling Alliance beforehand, but that went under. And Todd Gordon formed his own thing. Their first, do you know who their first champion was? You might have it there, actually. Um, I don't know if I do. Wait there, two secs. No, I don't think I do. 
Well, um, it was the it was the marvelous Don Morocco. Ah, I did not know that. For those first couple of years, because it was a new company, I guess because it was new, uh, some of the older guys thought, "Well, yeah, it's a new company, let's give it a try." Some of their early champions included Don Morocco and Jimmy Snooker. Ooh. Jimmy Snooker was a champion, and of course, it was '94. Uh, not long before they became Eastern Championship Wrestling. No, sorry, not long before they became Eastern Championship Wrestling. They started attracting some really interesting guys because it was in it was on September of '93, right? Mm-hmm. When um, their booker at the time, Eddie Gilbert, had a falling out with the owner Todd Gordon. Okay. Uh, and when they had a falling out, Todd Gordon wasn't sure what to do. So he turned to Eddie's closest confidant and said, help me here, help me put this show together. And that man was a fellow by the name of Paul Heyman. Uh, he, he started off uh, as a photographer, didn't he, if I remember? He did all sorts. He was, he was uh, indeed, as you said, he was originally a wrestling photographer at uh, various wrestling shows. And then he ended up as like a reporter or something. Then he ended up getting into it as a manager he may have been a wrestler at one point briefly, I'm not sure. I think he was very briefly at one point. But, of course, he did eventually become a manager, and then indeed a booker. The booker. Became a booker. And, it was, yeah, of course, poorly, dangerously, in WCW, he, uh, let's just say he wasn't too keen on performing in that role. No, no, to be fair, though, I mean, he's good now, isn't he, at that role? Well, it's quite—it's a bit of a different role in a way. I mean, uh, now he's pretty, hes great at it, but basically, he hated working. One of you was—he hated working for WCW. He hated it. And um, when he when he took over ECW and started—I'm not sure exactly at one point at what point he started doing this, but as long-term ECW fans will know, he painted ECW WCW as like the most vile bastards in history. Yeah, and they do. Okay, Mike. From a, from an uh, obviously, I'm a, a more slightly outsider than you. When watching the DVD, that's pretty much the same as well, isn't it? Um, that that that, yes. uh, that WCW was the the and uh, almost the Antichrist, so to speak, of, of yes, wrestling according indeed. to Paul Heyman. And what they do though, they they show WWE in such a be- in such a opposite light on the DVD. Is it is that is that bias or is that actually true? It, there's a little bit of truth to it, but it's exaggerated. Okay. Because on the one hand, yes, ECW did lose a hell of a lot of its talent to WCW. WCW signed Benoit, yep. Malenko, Guerrero, Saturn, Mysterio, Psychosis, La Parker. Moving to Carrera, Conan, a very long list of people. Oh dear. Yes, but in 1994, when ECW had, when ECW's top guy was Shane Douglas, Shane Douglas was signed by the WWF. Oh, okay. And in 1999, when ECW was at its hot. Yeah. Mike, you're gone. Oh, 
no. This is not good, ladies and gentlemen. Our first Christmas special, and Mike... Uh, and we're back in the room, Mike. Um, I don't know quite what happened there. You were going on about ECW at the beginnings, and the first yep. few shows. Paul Heyman, coming in. Didn't like being poorly dangerously, to summarise us. Went too much. I don't know if it's so much he didn't like being poorly dangerously as he just hated doing it for WCW. And as I said, although um, there, as I said, there was a long list of people that WCW signed later on, I'd say WWE signed some shit-hot guys as well for that company. Not as many, but they still signed Shane Douglas when he was their top guy. They signed Taz and the Dudleys in 99 when they were the top guys in ECW. Uh, when Raven walked out of ECW uh, for the second time in 99, he went straight to the WWF. And, um, yeah, Paul Heyman never seems to mention that. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, which which I find bizarre. I, I, think, I think it's... And also, in 1995, or, or maybe it was 1996 by that point, there was a little-known ECW wrestler called Steve Austin... Who was signed by the WWF? Why does Paul Heyman never acknowledge this fact? Wait a minute, wait a minute. Go, go, go. So Steve Austin, yeah, yes, was signed by the WWF in nineteen ninety six, right? From ECW. Did you not know this? Yeah, I did know that because he, he okay. left WCW. Got well fired by Eric Bischoff. Went yes. to ECW, had a bit, yep. a, a, had a blast. He looked like he enjoyed himself. Then he went, yeah, yeah. It's on the. It's, I remember it being on the DVD. And then obviously he went to WWE. So what you're saying is, is Paul Heyman being uh, uh, maybe a bit hypocritical that they they say they took Steve Austin away, but he's uh, you know so WWE are doing the same as they as WCW had done. Maybe not to the same extent, but. I think it's a case of Paul Heyman hated WCW because he didn't think they treated him and treated the talents at the time very well. And because of that, when WCW, of all people, nicked his talent, he saw it as much worse than when the holier-than-thou WWE did it. I see. And also, WWE, of course, helped ECW promote the barely legal pay-per-view. They... Uh, allowed ECW onto their television. Uh, they did some talent trading with uh, Rob Van Dam in 1997. Uh, the likes of Doug Furness going the other way, which is a bit of an odd mix. Basically, for some, because of those things, Paul Heyman looked at WCW doing it as a lot worse than WWE doing it, which I always found a bit weird. Yeah. I can second that. I can, I can understand why that's a bit... Um, he's not exactly... He doesn't come across as that impartial. But then again, um, people seem to think now, looking back at the Monday Night Wars, that ECW seemed to be the innocent victim of this war, and WWE were the good guys, and WCW were the bad guys. I mean, that seems to be the general consensus. I'd imagine that's because of the, you know, all the, all the um, indoctrinating, you could say, that WWE has done. Yes, there is probably some truth to that. WWE, the way they painted that picture, you mean, that kind of thing? Yes. There's got to be some truth to that. I mean, at the same time, although WCW took a lot more talent from WWE, uh, from ECW, than WWE did, WWE is a when they took people, they took the real top guys. And also, let's be honest, WWE's Attitude Era so often 
people looked at it and went, didn't ECW do that two years ago? And they did. And they did. So, so with ECW, you know, and Vince Russo has said he was a huge ECW fan, and so has Ed Ferrara, massive, massive ECW fan. It can't be a coincidence. No, no, I, no, you're absolutely right. It can't be. Uh, an interesting fact: if Paul Heyman, I mean, obviously on the DVD and publicly has ranted uh, about WCW being this evil thing. Let's be honest, Mike. I mean, let's try and be. Um, well, not really impartial because it's our opinions. But, Mike, looking back to when Vince McMahon first owned the Fed, what didn't he do exactly the same as WCW did, but to even more proportions and completely, uh, you could argue, destroyed the world of wrestling as it was then and completely changed it more than WCW has ever done with the way Vince McMahon conducted his business? It's very true. He took Roddy Piper from the end of... Well, I say took... Well, uh, with, at, that, at that point, people didn't know exactly what Vince was trying to do. But Vince McMahon, indeed, he, he signed Hulk Hogan and Andre the Giant uh, from, let me think now, and Tito Santana, all from the AWA. Sergeant Slaughter he pulled out of. I'm not sure why I covered He may have been AWA at the time, I'm not too sure. He, he signed Ted DiBiase a few years later from Mid-South Wrestling. He signed, as I mentioned, Roddy Piper for the NWA. Uh, Greg Valentine was also the NWA. He was feuding with Roddy Piper because they had that famous dog collar match against each other at Starcade. He signed them both. He raided from everywhere to create this amazing roster. And it was a smart thing to do. But as you say, as, as Eric Bischoff put on, the, put on the Rise and Fall of ECW DVD, did anyone call that a raid? No. It's no. an interesting point. It's an interesting point to make. No, yeah, it is. It is. And you could put the same, I know we're not talking about it, but the Monday Night Wars, you could say the same thing about when Vince McMahon cried a bit about that, that they were taking all of this. He'd done exactly the same thing earlier, hadn't he? Years earlier. Um, but going, going, back, going back to ECW. Yes, indeed. I mean, go back to ECW. Go I mean, on. it was Eastern Championship Wrestling. Okay, it was just, really at the time, NWA, ECW, it was just another wrestling company, wasn't it? Really just looked a- upon. So what, obviously, we know the moment Shane Douglas threw the belt down. Yeah? Of course. Would you say that was the moment that made the ECW, that made ECW, that made people pay attention, or was it after that? There were a couple of things. Okay, okay. So, what, what, I mean, okay, say uh, what, the, the number three, but what do you think, if you can narrow it down to a few, are there a few main things in the beginning of Extreme Championship Wrestling that really made them, made fans pay attention? And it became really the, it became the third wrestling company, didn't it? If we have to pick things from the early days, the belt throwing down was certainly, was maybe the biggest, because indeed it was a case of. <clears throat> Let's be honest, any other random wrestling promotion in the early 90s, where if they were embraced by the NWA, should have been on top of the world. Because the NWA throughout the 80s had been this wonderful thing. But as Shane Douglas put it when, in his speech when he threw the belt down, the NWA kind of died. Because the cream of the crop of the NWA had become WCW and been bought by Ted Turner. So what was left of the NWA was kind of the NWA trying to put itself back together. And the NWA found a, no one intended, a champion of that, or so it thought, in Eastern Championship Wrestling. They found the promotion 
that was getting some national attention, and they thought, great, let's do it through this one. And then when Shane Douglas had the bout down, they were like, oh, bollocks, we're back to stage one again. And let's be honest, did they ever really recover from losing WCW? I mean, briefly they did in the early 2000s when they had TNA, but the NWA kind of collapsed. And in, you're not in the example, as well as it didn't have much left to stand on. Well, yeah, for first of mentioning that, though, I forgot what year did the NWA part with TNA? Oh, hello, about 2007, I think. Okay, so at the peak of TNA, they departed, really, didn't they? And let's be honest, from about to, after 2007, it really did start to get started to go downhill, didn't it? TNA. I never thought of it like that. I'm not saying it's WA's fault. It's just a bit funny when they, when they parted company. Um, uh, um, when you look at the facts and the history dictates that either company hasn't actually done any better. ACW did a hell... Oh, I see, you mean NWA and TNA? Yeah. Yeah, there is some truth, but... Ooh, I haven't thought of it like that. But, no, but, but going your, back to the ECW... Yes, go on. Okay, yeah. yeah. There was also there's also one other thing we should mention in terms of those early moments. Yeah. And that was that three-way dance. That's ah, what happened. Sabu? Sabu, Shane Douglas, Terry Funk. That's it. The, that's it. The first three-way dance match, the first three-way singles match to happen on American soil, I think, ever. So, explain, a three-way dance, people are thinking, is that a triple threat? It's not, is it? It's, it, it, it's basically almost like a three-man battle royal. Basically, um, you know, it, it, it's a match which is basically an elimination match, essentially, isn't it? That's exactly it. It was a bit. It's a bit confusing when you first hear it. It was a three-way elimination match, which obviously we still get occasionally, but it was a three-way elimination match where the champion actually had a bye into the final. So only the other two guys could be eliminated, if you see what I mean. I see. Not a hell of a lot of people are aware, though, that Shane Douglas was the champion at the time. He actually had a bye into what I guess you call the final. And... Uh, it was Sabu and Funk kind of battling to join him into the last two. But, of course, that didn't happen because it went to a one-hour time limit draw and it was a match where there were no silly gimmicks. I'm not even sure if they used weapons or if they did. It wasn't very much. It was just straight wrestling by a very talented young wrestler in uh, Shane Douglas, an insanely good Sabu, who's become an indie legend, as he should be, and a veteran Terry Funk. And basically, at a time when, in in the early 90s, when you had WCW having Robocop or whatever, and you had the gobbledygooker in WWE... I'm not saying they were bad, obviously, but some silly decisions like that. When ECW did a one-hour time limit draw, three men, people went, and it was an amazing match, people went, oh, maybe this is worth looking at. And then not long after that, Shane Douglas throws the belt down, and all of a sudden the whole wrestling world has heard of them. I mean, it's an interesting one. When Since we've been doing the show, Mike, um, the last four years, when has a draw to a match actually been a good thing by the fans and been reveredly cheered 
essentially. I don't think ever, really. Um, never, since we've never, been, no, never, never. No, 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 never. And, and what you're saying is, almost to, to a certain extent, bringing it, um, tra- comparing it to, well, not quite nowadays, but uh, where you had WWF and WCW basically doing all these gimmicky, cartoony, um, unrealistic crap, essentially. So- to an extent, to an extent, and yeah. and then you had ECW, which was uh, more gritty and real. And you could even argue, um, um, we, we had a similar thing about four or five years ago with people at WWE shows chanting TNA, and where TNA was this gritty alternative to WWE, which was which seemed to be struggling to to maintain its wrestling, you know, identity. I mean, would you say it's similar? I'd say it's very similar. I mean. Basically, with ECW, although a lot of people who don't know a hell of a ECW just hear the name Machine Championship Wrestling, have seen the odd match and just think it's the Sandman and barbed wire and canes and chairs and ladders. That's nowhere near the case. And even when that was the case, what you had was you had two guys fighting with weapons or otherwise to find out who was the best and putting on a match that would entertain those 1,500 people every month, every week, or whatever it became. Wow. Exactly. It was, in a sense, the most traditional wrestling show there was. That was the reality of it. It was basically a case of, all right, yes, it at times was violent. We can't deny that. It was very violent. But at the same time, it had this purity to it in a strange way, you know? Yeah. There was just yeah, definitely. There was something about it that just made you think this is a wrestling show. And I don't feel like sports entertainment and I don't feel like my intelligence is being insulted in the way that some of the early nineties WWF was. It just felt like a wrestling show. Whether you've got weapons or not, it was two guys or occasionally three, as we found out recently. Not recently, but in the in our recent talking. Two or three guys or a team versus a team to find out who was the best man. And entertain fans doing it. And that's what wrestling is supposed to be. Oh, well, I can't really argue with that. That is what... that Yeah, that is what wrestling is supposed to be. And big thumbs up to that. I mean, amazing. Absolutely. And at the time, they did it great. They did it really, really well. And then, as we move on from 94 and that sort of time, uh, that only evolved when Paul Heyman started bringing in some of the wrestlers we mentioned earlier, such as Benoit and Guerrero, Malenko, uh, Two Cold Scorpio was already there, Shane Douglas was in and out during 94-95, some of the luchadors started to come in from Mexico. That was when, all of a sudden, because, you know, when you watch an ECW show from, say, 99, of the eight matches, only two of them are, like, hardcore. The rest of them are just damn good wrestling matches. But it's damn good wrestling matches that, that don't have to have the Lex Express, you know, Lex Luger, a muscle band guy who didn't have much talent. It's just two really talented guys, you know, that kind of thing. So as that as ECW evolved, the, this pure feeling to it became even more true because you didn't just have a few good wrestlers and a lot of brawlers. You suddenly had some incredibly talented wrestlers, um, Kind of evening up the odds, you know. Yeah, no, no, absolutely. Um, obviously, the 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 obvious question then would be, Mike, do you feel that had it not been for ECW, 
would uh, would we have seen the Luke draw or the slightly different style? I'd imagine for me we would, but I think it definitely brought it in years earlier than either WCW or WWE would have done. I mean, how much of an effect do you think for that for that genre of wrestling had there not been an ECW? Well, the kind of high flying type thing. Yeah. Well, the high flying thing. It's just it, it. Although there was some of it in America at this point, there wasn't much. You had Janetti and Michaels. You had Brian Pillman. Not a lot else. In the early nineties, there was you know the WCW Light Heavyweight Championship, and that was great. Uh, at what it did. But at the same time, the real homes of those styles of wrestling were Mexico and Japan. Paul Heyman brought it into East USA to a bigger degree. He it wasn't the first, but I guess it was like you know people when it, to take a musical uh, similarity or sim, simile, right? People think that Elvis Presley invented rock and roll. Elvis Presley did not come close to inventing rock and roll, but he popularized it. Huger than it ever was before. I think that's what Paul Heyman did with those guys. He didn't invent or he, he wasn't the first to discover light heavyweight wrestling, but he did it on a scale that no one had before to the point where WCW went, I want that. And Eric Bischoff slapped together the cruiserweight division. Which so he, is a lot of ECW guys. Yeah, so basically Paul Heyman um, got it all together and basically packaged it for the the uh, you know the type of American slash well not we don't really want to say Western audience but he packaged it for the for the American um, and, and you know audience and uh, made made it made it acceptable and and made it made it popular something that obviously WWE and WCW to that point had failed to do. I guess that is quite true, but the thing is, he didn't really repackage it or anything. He just reintroduced it. I mean, when you think about it, when he first brought in Psychosis and the Parker, people like that, and Hoover to Guerrero, they were all still wearing masks. I'm not saying anything wrong with that, obviously. I could never say that. It's a wonderful Mexican tradition. But, you know, they still all had their masks. They still had the very colourful ring gear. He didn't really package it any differently. All he did was slip it into ECW, into a pocket that fits. ECW is becoming slowly more accepted by by American racing fans, not on a national scale necessarily, by the mid-90s, although there obviously was a lot more attention after the belt throwing down a couple of years earlier, whatever. Uh, But basically, in in creating this uh, aura of ECW, of something that was different to the, the big two companies, and also, as I say, had a strong wrestling ethic, they fit very well. Whereas in WCW and WWE, the way they were constructed at the time... If you drop Juventud Guerrero or Jushin Thunder Liger or Gran Hamada or whoever into uh, WWE at the time, people would have gone, what the hell is this? Why isn't he talking, you know? In, yeah. ECW, in ECW, it fit better. That was what Heyman did. I see. That's my thinking. No, 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 no I appreciate it. I mean, hey, had it not been for Heyman, um, my, one of my favourite wrestlers, Chris Jericho, would not have been around. That's true. I mean, Jericho was originally in Mexico and Japan, wasn't he? Yeah, old Lionheart. Lionheart, indeed. And also, what was it? Um, let me think. If it wasn't for Paul Heyman, quite a few of those guys would never got their start in America, you know? As well as we, we, we may have never heard of Rey Mysterio. 
He was he was one of those guys who was brought in in like ninety five. Really? Then, yeah, yeah. Rey Mysterio was first seen on a on a American level and thus later on an international level in ECW. He was wrestling for Conan in Mexico, and then um, that Conan was the cha- was the AAA champion, I think it was, or something like that, CMWL champion, something like that. And they brought him in in '95 to wrestle the Sandman as a one-off. They kept in touch, or however it works, and Heyman got some got Conan to send in some Mexican wrestlers of his. And Heyman went, this is brilliant. You know, the, the, the fans loved it. Can I have more? And that was where Rey Mysterio came from. There was also a Super Crazy first popped up as well. Oh, I see. Yeah, yeah. He was one of Conan's guys as well. And, of course, Super Crazy became a bit of an ECW legend because of those brilliant, brilliant matches he had with Tajiri. He's super, he's super crazy. Yeah, I, I found it a bit weird when Super Crazy, a brilliant wrestler was reduced to going, I'm super, I'm crazy, I'm super crazy. And yeah, no, I mean, I, I think at the time, um, Vince McMahon seemed to like the Nacho Libre um, film or, 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 or all, the, all the hype yeah. it was getting. I don't know why. No, shocking film, I thought. Um, and I think, I think he was basing his character kind of around that, unfortunately. I never thought of it like that. I mean, the, I thought the Mexicals were brilliant. Oh, yeah. I, I thought they were great. I thought they were fun, but sadly short-lived. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. It's it's a shame when you see these potential tag teams and what, for example, WWE could have done and what they didn't do. And that's the one thing that was absolutely... I mean, even I, um, you know, you know, ha- watching the few shows that I have, have seen ECW and watching the documentary where Paul Heyman has said, accentuate the positives hide the negatives and that's quite yes. and that's something that i think the wwe in particular even over tna really does not do for example ryback not very good at promos so they gave him a few lengthy promos to show he's not very good at promos for example mm. they're putting him for example in a tlc match coming up which you know but they but they they, they have the history of, of of doing completely the opposite to this ecw paul Heyman ethos i know what you mean they try it but they do sometimes get it wrong because as you say with someone like ryback and i i, I know and i'm sure i'm not the first person to think this right but if you take the Ultimate Warrior, Goldberg, Ryback, Lex Luger, those kind of people, right? And I'm not saying Ryback is as bad as the Ultimate Warrior or whatever. And I loved Goldberg, right? But he's a guy who, as we've seen, is most effective in short, sharp matches. He comes in, destroys, and leaves. After a while, WWE starts to get them to do other things that they're not used to, or more importantly, they're not ready for yet. That kind of thing. I think Ryback's promos are okay, but what I but I did think is this too soon to putting him in long matches? You know what I mean? Absolutely. So I, I do wonder about that bit. But let's be honest; they have they have had Ryan Reeves, his real name knocking around the development territories for nearly seven sort of seven years. So if he's not going to do it by now, he's never going to do it, you know? 
No. Yeah, exactly. Um, He's been around a long time, uh, has Ryback, under various names and in various forms. It's just this one seems to be working. It does. It, yeah, it does. Um, fingers crossed. For now. That's that's the big thing. Yeah, I've thought that as well. It's it's working for now as a stopgap, but I don't know. I don't know if I see him having a long term thing. I hope I'm wrong, obviously, for his sake. But I, I question that. Yeah, I, I mean, on a side note with Ryback, it seems that the Hell in the Cell had a very good buy rate, and I'd imagine Vince McMahon saw the buy rate, realized, I mean, and completely probably forgot why it was such a great buy rate being an undefeated wrestler against one of the longest champions we've had in quite a while, which yes. I think was the reason for the buy rate, and, and a new guy, and decided for the next two pay-per-views, for whatever reason, to go ahead and um, and book and book Ryback in, in these matches where you could argue his exposure. Because if you look at the finishes of the matches, they've all been quite gimmicky, understandably so, because you don't want CM Punk beating him clean. Um, uh, but perhaps, Mike, a better way, and perhaps a Paul Heyman way of doing it, would have had Ryback and CM Punk in opposite sides at Survivor Series, like we all thought they were going to do, and have Ryback basically be one against five at Survivor Series and, and beat them all, including pinning Punk. Therefore, you know, going into TLC, you'd be more excited about it. Accentuate the positives, hide the negatives. You could have just had Ryback destroy them all. You know, that's what I'd imagine Paul Heyman might have done. I don't know. But that that's an interesting thought, and yeah, that it, that would have been quite a poor hanging way to handle it. But at the same time, when you think about it, Survivor Series, Punk, Cena, Ryback, how could any booker resist that? No, I I could yeah, but I would argue it's uh, it's always blowing your load too early. You, do you think they should be doing that at TLC, the three way? Um, maybe. I mean, if you want, if you want to blow, if you, if you want to. If you want to blow it off, or let's be honest, after The Rock's gone or something, uh, you could have booked that, kept it on hold, and made that a very exciting SummerSlam main event. Hmm. That's true. That is true. But when you think about it, that's quite a way in advance to hope that Ryback still has that kind of heat. Yeah, that's, that, yeah, that, that's very true. But the, a, surely a character like Ryback, Goldberg, the Ultimate Warrior, is... Um, I'd like to think, quite an easy character not to mess up. Nice and simple, come out, destroy people, job done, uh, most of the time. And, you know, I mean, you could have him holding the Intercontinental belt all the way up to SummerSlam and keep him and keep him busy and over like that. As long as he's destroying geeks and the heels where the people boo, generally they're going to cheer for him, aren't they? So you reckon that maybe he should have had his hell in the cell shot, then be taken back down a bit for a while? Yeah. Fair enough, fair enough. I never really thought of it like that. But I guess with Ryback, they're just thinking, we've done Cena and Punk enough times now. We've got we got Punk versus Rock in January. We needed a guy to be main event against Punk to fill those few months. And that's where Ryback came in. And that's where what came in, Mike? Ryback. Ryback. Ah, oh, the Ryback. He's a stopgap. Hope, hope. That's a very squeaky chair you have there. Yes, it is. <laughs> Just leant forward and back. Um, Ryback is a stopgap. Yeah, he probably is. Yeah. yeah. Ho- hopefully he'll become something great, but for now he's a stopgap. Fair prob- enough. 
Yeah, you're probably right. I can, yeah, I can, I can understand the, the the way they're doing it. It's once again this problem, Mike. I'm not meaning to talk too much about it of them failing to have a good pool of stars that they can, or or wrestlers, let's say, not superstars, a good pool of talented wrestlers that the audience know are big deals. That WWE has a very shallow pool of. If if anything messes up their plans, they can't. There's no go-to set of people, are there? There is some truth to that, yeah, actually. Now, yeah, yeah, I see what you're getting at. And so often, they, as we call it, book themselves into a corner. Yeah, that's true, actually. I mean, who else is there at that very top level right now? There's enough guys who could do it, but not enough guys who I think would be easily accepted by fans in that role. No, you're right, there is enough guys, yeah. Um, which, unfortunately, is... Is is a bit of a shame, but but once again, Mike, it's one of these subjects we've talked. We've well, we wouldn't say talk to death, but we talk and talk about because it's so obvious, and it's the fact that it's this massive hole which they haven't really filled. Even after even after three or four years, we probably could have said the same thing. The only plus point is about four or five years ago, they had Shawn Michaels and Triple H, and arguably Undertaker on a more on a regular basis, but they still weren't making any new stars. As such, I mean, you could argue they got Brian Punk, um, and uh, of, of, obviously Ryback now. But you got your SmackDown show and you got your Raw show. You still have a too shallow pool of established faces and heels who could legitimately, almost at a moment's moment's notice, be in a main event. And you believe they they have a legitimate chance of winning that main event, and they kind of deserve that main event, and you'd care about them in the main event. Um, no. Whereas if it was one roster again, as we've said recently, you'd have a few more guys to hand. Well, yeah, I mean, interestingly, TNA have uh, gone back uh, uh, doing 10 pay-per-views next year. Really? Yeah, they've taken... So basically, you've got almost eight-week, two-month build to lockdown and almost an eight-week slash two-month build to Bound for Glory. They're two biggest buy-rate pay-per-views, which I think is a good thing. Their biggest pay-per-view buy rates of the year. Yeah, I, I think TNA, I mean, they're struggling so much when we laugh. We laugh, Mike, at their pay-per-view we numbers. We do. That they really should do, I reckon, six a year. You've mentioned this before, yeah. I mean, I just, I don't know. They I can't be making, think... I cannot see how they make a profit or even break even on their pay-per-views. That's true, actually. They, they, they couldn't happen. I've said it a thousand times. TNA just needs to have its own identity. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, but but from uh, from TNA that last the pay per views to ECW's first pay per view, Mike, barely legal. We work, we go forward a couple of years. ECW's transformed a bit. We've got uh, Taz and Sabu as this mega ass feud, this really heated feud, and we've got ECW trying to get. Yeah, more and more national exposure. They're running more and more towns in the northeast. They're doing the odd show in Atlanta as well. But as you say, national exposure only comes through you know television and pay per view. And this they couldn't exactly syndicate across all of America. They I doubt they could even afford to anyway. Mm-hmm. And with the product they had, a lot of TV channels wouldn't have taken it anyway. So indeed. It came to 1997 where every single penny, it was their WrestleMania in the sense of 
it was going to make them or break them, you know? They put everything on the line for that show. They had some great matches lined up. They had they had the vast majority of their best talent was on the show. And they just had to, you know, hope that people bought the damn show. And thank God they did. Yeah, absolutely. And then, and then, would you say around that show was the peak of ECW? What would you say the peak years, in your opinion, obviously, uh, um, were for Extreme Championship Wrestling? See, I've thought about this a tiny bit, and it's a tricky one to judge because some people would say creatively their peak wasn't the same peak as their peak in popularity. You know that kind of thing which we've had said about companies in the past as well. It's like ECW's biggest ever crowd was 5,500 people for a pay-per-view in late 99. Anarchy Rules, I think it was, in September of 99. However, there are a lot of people who said that their creative peak would be perhaps during 97 or 98. Is that the whole um, um, Raven and, and the Dreamer Pop stuff and the, the stuff with the Sandman when he really picked his character about you know being blind, pretending to be blind and really working that working that gimmick where people actually genuinely believed it? Was that was that around that time? Uh, Dreamer and Raven finished in '97, so that was certainly a big one then. The Sandman one was actually a little bit earlier than that, I think. I think that was more at 95 when you had, obviously, of course, Tommy Jr. being caned beyond belief. Could I have another, please? Yes, indeed. Yes, you can, Dick. Yes, you can. Thank you, sir. May I have another? That's the and one. That's the one. Where he just smashes him up and he's bleeding and crying <laughs> and everything. And ah. Either way, but uh, I tend to think that ECW, when you look at it, if, say, you look at 98, early 99, right? Yep. You're just thinking of all the guys they had at that time. You had Rob Van Dam and Jerry Lynn having some brilliant matches. You had Shane Douglas and Taz finally going against each other. Sabu and Taz facing each other in April of 99. Tajiri and Super Crazy having those astonishingly good matches. The Dudleys having good matches with everyone. You had you had Masato Tanaka evolving from this little five foot eight guy into this you know the toughest bastard to ever come out of Japan. I you had a, a young Lance Storm, just incredible was doing great in his matches with Tommy Dreamer, who was always consistent. I think it's hard to argue any time other than early '99 when everything was coming together. Candido was looking great as well. Uh, I think early '99 is probably the time when. They weren't on TV yet, so they still felt a bit old school and underground. But it, because of the pay-per-views, it was popular enough to be accessible. So I reckon probably 98 or early 99 would be when they were really in their stride. Yeah? That's what I think, yeah. Excellent. I mean, you had a couple of uh, amazing moments earlier on, obviously. There's one match that I've got on tape that I've never actually watched that I really need to see. And any big ECW fans out there will be surprised I've never seen it. And that is the Sabu, Terry Funk, Barb Wire match. Okay, why is that then, Mike? I've not seen that match because I've just never got around to watching it. But apparently it is Terry Funk, according to him, nearly died because he got Barb Wire wrapped around his neck. Nice. I know. Sabu got 
barbed wire stuck in his bicep and and filled it and he had to tape the wound shut and glue it back together and carried on wrestling. OMG, as I, you might text. I know. I know. I mean, the, the... Jesus Christ. I mean, what these guys... I know people often say this about wrestling, but it's even more true for ECW. The things that they did to their own bodies because they knew the product was good and for a love of wrestling and a love of entertaining was just beyond belief. I mean, have you ever heard of the Tape Deathmatch? Do you know that one? No, I don't. The Tape Deathmatch was a match between Axel Rotten, if you remember him, and Ian Rotten, his on-screen brother, who was actually from Newcastle. They were a tag team. They split up and started feuding. Their feud culminated, and this is again a match I've, I've not seen, but I want to see this one. They they got their fists, yeah, <laughs> yeah, taped them up in the way that you wrestlers do, dipped them in glue, smashed up some bottles to the point where the broken bottles are on their fists, and then fought each other. Oh. This is how brutal the, some of those times got. But, as I say, many times, that was only that became major on only part of the show. There were amazing matches, some of them, sort of really violent stuff, but it didn't, it wasn't the be-all, end-all of ECW. And one thing with ECW that we have to mention is how fun some of it was. And one guy who instantly comes to head then on the other side, like I say, you've got you've got the brutality, the great wrestling. They had some fun moments too. One of which, the big one being Al Snow and Head. Oh yeah, Al Snow and Head. You know who obviously became famous in '99 in the Delivery, Actually, was breathed into life in ECW. Al Snow was in. ECW in like a sort of a talent trade, I think it was. He was under WWE contract. He was originally part of the New Rockers in 96 under the rather terrible name of Leaf Cassidy. And he had a, he was in the New Rockers with Marty Jannetty. It never really worked, so he was sent down to ECW. And in the end, he ended up with this head gimmick. And as you have seen on the DVD and as I've seen on other shows... It was hilarious. There was Al Snow would come to the ring with the heads that he would talk to as if it was his girlfriend or whatever. And you would have the entire ECW arena audience with plastic heads. Oh, well, I, mem- I remember seeing this. Obviously not live, but... It was brilliant. There was one, ma- there was one wrestling match where Al Snow was originally facing a guy called Paul Diamond, right? Paul Diamond was injured, so he so in the end, Al Snow faced a wrestler who you may be more familiar with, Roadkill. Remember Roadkill at all? Roadkill. Yep, yeah, 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 I do. Yeah, the, the Armist Warrior, the angry Armist Warrior, who I thought was an astonishingly good wrestler. Either way, um, so Al Snow faced a young Roadkill. But Paul Diamond had a manager. 
Chastity. Oh, yeah. I think, I think, was it Chastity? Was it another one? Oh, what was her name? Oh, what was her name? Chastity was Raven's sister in WCW. What was that other girl's name? Yeah, I can't remember. It's not important. But either way, Chastity or whoever it was, was going to cut a little promo about Paul Diamond being brilliant and how Al Snow was a moron. That promo should take, what, 40 seconds? Yeah. Because the crowd was so excited about seeing Al Snow and were using these plastic or polystyrene heads to clap their hands and that, the promo took 10 minutes. <laughs> nice. It that- was fantastic. I do think, I mean, you still kind of get those moments when someone retires, but other than that, you don't really get too many of those moments these days. I, mean, I don't think we even got that with, with The Rock and Cena, unfortunately. I mean, you know, and, and this was this was back in, what, getting on now pretty much, you know, 15, 15 plus years ago now. What do you mean by those sorts of moments? Those, those sorts of just, you know, guy can't continue his promo. I'm saying, unless someone's actually retiring with the crowd going that crazy, and bearing in mind there's more of them at a WWE show, um, fair enough, the acoustics might um, not lend it. So, you know, one might seem the crowd's a bit quieter, but we don't seem to get those moments where the crowd are going so mad that they can't continue their promo. And the only times we do, I think, is when someone's actually retiring or we know it's their last match. But we don't seem to get those magic moments with that crowd reaction, as you were saying. And speaking about the crowd, the crowd would definitely want almost one half of ECW, weren't they? The ECW crowds were hilarious. There was one, uh, I think I mentioned on the show before, uh, a chant that was really good. You know how Chris Candido was... Uh, Sonny, right? Yeah. Remember that? Yeah. Or Tammy Lynn Sitch, as she was also known. That was her real name, obviously. And they would chant at Candido so much and such, such wonderful chants. Like one of them, I, I, I hope you won't have to cut any of this, but you know, there was one where Candido would just come out and they would say, Sonny sucks your dick. Suddenly sucks your dick and that kind of thing. And then after a while, they started trying to, I'd still fuck her. Oh, yeah. I'd still fuck her. <laughs> which was just, which I just thought was hilarious. And as you say, the crowd got into it so much. And um, what was it? You, uh, what was that? Oh, yeah. Uh, one thing that you'll be aware of was where the crowd would bring weird weapons for the wrestlers to use. That kind of thing. Oh, yes, I remember that. Yeah, and also they would start doing any... They would take people, the rest is into their hearts so much. I mean, when as soon as Rob Van Dam started calling himself the whole fucking show, that became the new huge hit chart with the fans, you know? Um, it was, uh, let me think... As soon as Steve Carino started calling himself the king of old school, that became a hit with him as well. It took longer because at first he was an out-and-out heel, but then people started to appreciate him a bit. And then, of course, you had the Sandman. The Sandman going all the way through the fans, drinking beer with the fans during a a five-and-a-half-minute song, making it last the whole song. You couldn't do that in any company but ECW. Because the ECW fans seem to really appreciate the wrestlers on almost a personal level. 
You know what I mean? They weren't just another guy, and next week there's another guy trying to get over. They really loved him. I said the chants were hilarious, but, but I think what sticks in my head is also how the ECW fans just appreciated their wrestlers so much more than other companies I've seen. Oh, well, uh, uh, okay, okay, and obviously ECW. I mean, it folded. Was it? Was it? Was it because uh, of, of Paul Heyman's uh, um, much publicised bad finances, or were there other reasons? I think that was the main one, sadly. But there were a couple of uh, other little bits. I mean, in about 96, 95, 96, when the company was doing well, not on pay-per-view yet, but doing well, um, and then and the Friday, the Friday night, the Monday night wars had just started to begin. Paul Heyman realised that he needed to start tying his wrestlers to some some very big some very big contracts if he was going to find a way to keep them. Right in 1996, you had Sandman was making 125 thousand dollars a year. Oh, okay, and Sabu was on the same. Shane Douglas was on the same. Uh, Tommy Dreamer was probably on similar. You had about five or six guys whose combined wages were a million dollars. I don't. I don't think it's just the fact that Paul Heyman was terrible with money. I think it's also Paul Heyman had to pay the wrestlers so much because they were getting big offers. Let's be honest, from the big two companies. I mean, let's 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 look at it in a simplistic way. This kind of relates back to the talent thing of earlier. You had in ECW a kind of funnel effect in that all of the best independent talent in the world, especially in the States, but also in Japan and Mexico to a slight extent, would all convene in that one company. So when WWE or WCW needed talent, they knew exactly where to go, straight to ECW. And because of that, Paul Heyman had to start tying his guys into contracts he could barely afford. So by the time ECW was on pay-per-view and on television, they had so much debt from those earlier years. I hate to say it, it, you'd have needed someone amazing with money to sort it out. You're saying it was almost inevitable, the end result. I hate to say it, but yes. Okay, and then and then look. I mean, looking at it, we know the wrestlers make a company, obviously. You know, because you you want to go see the wrestlers, but because Paul Heyman is has has this talent, as as we keep saying, of getting the best out the best out of people, would it have been possible, Mike, to say if I can't afford them, just let them go anyway? Um, and potentially, WWE would have potentially ruined them, ruined their characters anyway. You know, as we've seen, as we've seen previously, and just get newer wrestlers in from the industry that did it, and obviously pay them with contracts, and and and, and so go on. Because ECW had this cult following, ECW had this had this very loyal, the most what you could argue the most loyal group of fans. Do you think ECW could have survived without these big wrestlers because they could have quite easily made more and had? and therefore negating Paul Heyman having to pay these big contracts. Would that have ever been possible, in your opinion? Although in theory that should have worked, if he'd done it like that, 
it would have become ECW would have become like a sort of like a lower division football club or something in the way that it's just a place where the young guys go to get their start the old guys go to finish off and no one stays there long enough to really build a rapport with the audience and build their career and build the company. Well, funny you should say that. I mean, surely in this day and even in this, well, not in this day and age, but, but surely even, even back then you could have, as you said, ECW could have been this pinnacle of where you get started in your wrestling career. They could have come to Paul Heyman and gone, yeah, okay, you're good. Here's a five-year contract, not a one, but here's a five-year contract. And then maybe, and then they've all, you know, I'm paying you this much, and then, you know, plus potential bonuses or an increase over the five years, depending how well they do. I mean, I mean, so, but bearing in mind that, would that have been possible? Well, you mean if he'd have given them longer contracts but less money? Well, not longer contract, yeah, less money, but you could have said, especially on the, on the indie scenes, if you see someone could be a star, you know, keep him basically, hold him down with a contract for five years, and at least then he would have had the time to invest with the audience, and almost a bit like um, the old territory system, you probably, over the five years, if he was a bag big star, you, you would have got a lot of storylines um, over in those five years, and you could argue those storylines would have probably only been repeated after five years, so you might have got the best that you could have done from that wrestler before he passed on. But how do you get a guy to stick around for five years? Because, let's be honest, uh, okay, ECW, it was the third promotion. You could argue it was, to a certain extent, the OVW. Uh, what you know once was to 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 the big two to WWE. It was it, it was to a certain extent the feeder when you look at all the people that went through to these two big companies. Now, if someone wanted to get noticed, WWE and WCW probably wouldn't have had a wouldn't even look to somebody until they went to ECW. Or you know that happened quite often, didn't it? As we've been saying. So surely if, someone, if you offered them a contract in ECW for five years, maybe three, four, five years, they would have said, okay, I'm in here, I'm getting paid, I'm getting established, I'm going to get noticed within those five years. And hopefully at the end of the five years, I'll get a contract with the big two. If ECW... Oh, see, this is a tricky one to answer, because I know what you mean. That sounds like a great idea. In, in theory, but... I think the reason that that, that that didn't work or couldn't work as whatever is a couple of reasons. Firstly, Paul Heyman never wanted it to be a feeder promotion. No, I appreciate he, that. He never wanted it to be the number three company. He wanted it to be right up there with the big two. And to do that, I guess you need to establish some stars. If you establish stars and as soon as they're established, they're gone... And then there's the next crop, and then suddenly they're gone, and gone, and gone, and gone. Then, as I say, all ECW looks like is a starter kit. Okay. And, then, then and, it... and although that's fine for the wrestlers, it's not fine if you want to build a long-term company. And if you had got to the point where if you joined ECW 95, and you, wanted to, and you thought, right, I, I'll stay here for a few years and then get noticed, in 95... When you joined ECW, or maybe you were in 1994, you didn't know that it was going to become that, you know? That's very true. That's the sad thing. If you joined ECW in 98, that maybe could work, if you see what I mean. Yeah, okay, okay. then the other question is, Mike, would it have ever had... Had they had their money situation a bit sorted, had they... I know, I know ifs and buts. Had they been a bit richer, though, and not gone into finances... 
any financial trouble, would they have emerged as the top company ever? I don't think they would have become the top company. Do you think I... they would have overtaken the WCW at some point, potentially? Would, did they have the potential to? Uh, hmm. Well, like I said, I don't think they'd have become number one because WWE's Attitude Era was that perfect balance of part ECW, part kiddish wrestling, part old school, part whatever. It was bang in the middle and it worked. Whereas ECW was more of the X-rated version, if you see what I mean. The less accessible was still brilliant. So I think it would have done very well. I don't think it would have become number one. Could it have beaten WCW? Hmm. I mean, well, bearing in mind, it did fold and it really went downhill in 2000, 2001. Um, WCW, didn't it? True, although ECW did a bit as well. But the reason ECW did is because they had to let wrestlers go because they couldn't afford to pay them anymore. So that's difficult to judge. I mean... Okay, had... Okay. There is one thing with ECW that always made it difficult, right? To go on a national plane. And that's the TV? Yes, the TV. Yeah, where Spike, um, according to Paul Heyman, kind of screwed them. Exactly. Because most networks wouldn't let ECW show their product as rude and as attitudinal, if that's the right word, and as at times hardcore as it actually was. So because of that, it would have always been difficult to do that. I think ECW should have carried on as this thing where you you have your TV show to get your national exposure, but where it really made its money would have been its touring. Where touring and showing what it can really do. Whereas WCW and WWF were much more... Uh, television products and because they're much more television products you could argue they would have always been bigger because of the extra money that would have come in but if only they'd have had the right guy looking after the money behind the scenes then ECW could have become the biggest cult thing in wrestling history if maybe it did but to the point where it could have been a long term one you know what I mean yeah uh, no, no, def- I mean and obviously with, with, with ECW folding Eventually, unfortunately, and WCW, we had TNA. Um, and TNA wouldn't have existed without those two folding. However, um, what I will say is, would we have a TNA if there wasn't an ECW at all? Not in the way that we know it. No? No, because so much of the early days, and not even the early, just so, many, just so much of TNA setting itself apart was having a similar indie feeling to ECW and also TNA marketed itself a lot using the X division which let's be honest would not have happened if it wasn't for the Cruiserweights and wouldn't have happened if it wasn't for ECW No, I mean the X division almost seemed like an evolution of of ECW to a certain degree, the ethos, didn't it? To an extent, yes Yeah, it seemed like an evolved evolved ECW you know, know, wrestling league almost Um now, okay, the Mike. So, so be, being the ECW fan, how do you view the way it was treated by WWE? The first one night stand, thumbs up. The second one, thumbs up, but maybe not as much as the first. But after that, well, you mean when they resurrected it? Yeah. 
It was a fucking farce. Yeah. I, I mean, it, it brought potentially WWE's worst ever pay-per-view, December to Dismember. I almost want to buy that and do commentary on it for a laugh. We, we, <laughs> maybe next year, Mike. Next year, one of our advent because we're not going to do it this year. One of our advent calendar specials is to pot around each other's house for our Christmas special for 2013. Is commentary of December to Dismember, Mike? Why not? We, 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 we need to organise that. Um, but I mean, I mean, why? With such an obvious, I mean, with such an obvious following and such a niche, you, you know, they have this amazing thing. And is it because no one was interested, which I don't, I don't really believe, or did really basically Vincent Mann and Co. Did they mess it up on purpose, or were they just completely clueless? I think the interest was there. We saw that from the one night stand, very impressive buy rates. I think there was interest there. I think basically, as we've seen a thousand times, Vince McMahon is not very good at using anything that Vince McMahon didn't create himself. So would you say then, I mean, are you saying that he was almost too arrogant to be able to deal with ECW, a la the um, whole, uh, um, you know, alliance, WCW feud? Pretty much. There... I don't know if it's arrogance or just... It's hard to know what it is, but Vincent Mann seems to think there's a form, there's a type of wrestling that works, there's a formula of wrestling that works, and you need to sit to that formula and then embellish around it. And the and ECW was not that formula at all. No. Okay. Let's be honest. It was a different feeling to it. It was a different style of booking. It was diff- very different forms of interviewing when they bothered at all. I mean, obviously, you had some incredible interviews over the years, the likes of Austin and Mick Foley and what have you. But for the most part, let's be honest, when you watch an ECW show, there's very few interviews. It's so much less about character than WWF is. The reason that ECW in the WWF didn't work is is that... Is Vince McMahon needed to create ECW and then not have a thing to do with it because he made it into just WWF Volume Two. And in the, whole, the end, absolutely. In, yes, and in my head, the whole point of having multiple brands is to pick up multiple sections of the audience. Oh, I, I, you just need to look at the fact that they had Big Show and Bobby Lashley as their champions. Don't get me wrong, uh, as cha- they're realistically WWE Championship material, but ECW Championship material, when you had this whole other pool of people, uh, was a bit ridiculous, and I think the fans had kind of given up by that point. Very much so. I mean, when you've got some of the biggest... I mean, Tommy Dreamer faced Davari. I mean, for the love of God, why? I know. It's like, I know. It's like Vincent Mann has this idea in his head. I don't know if it's an arrogance thing or if it's him being a bit sim- simple. Short-sighted, I, maybe? Definitely short-sighted. Kind of close-minded in that he just thinks that there's a certain way you do a wrestling show. And that's just his style. Every promoter has their style. And ECW was too different a style for him to understand. Well, okay, well, Mike, trying to end on a po- ending on a positive note then, um, give me, it's going to be difficult, Mike, but 
seeming as you're definitely um, the more knowledgeable fan of ECW uh, compared to us two, give me three key wrestlers that you think the most, three of the best, the three of the best, the, the people that shaped ECW the most. We're talking wrestlers, because obviously we could argue that, you know, Paul Heyman, for example. Three wrestlers who shaped ECW. The most important wrestlers, the three wrestlers in ECW. Sabu. Okay. Definitely Sabu. A lot of people say Terry Funk. It's hard to it's hard to say how true that is because he was more helpful with putting people over in the really early days. So I don't know. So uh, I don't know as much. So the people who really, in my head. I think helped put ECW on the map and helped it become the one that it did. One was Sabu for being so incredibly innovative. One that I love is Taz. I love Taz. I don't know. It's hard to say with him, with Taz, what he did. Well, he definitely gave it the big fight, almost uh, um, um, UFC type feel, didn't he? When he came down. He definitely did. That's one thing that Heyman wanted to achieve. RVD, you could easily argue, because just because he was so damn good. But at the same time, I think you really have to mention Tommy Dreamer. And the reason for Tommy Dreamer is not just because he was a good wrestler, but because he did booking, because he dipped into his own wallet to help the company because he sold merchandise, because he did everything, you have to mention Tommy Dreamer as well. There you go. There's your three. Well, well Mike, I, I, I mean, I mean, we, we, I, I, sorry, I'm stuttering too much. I could sit here. I don't know as much about ECW as you said. We could talk for hours. Um, um, but I was going to say, take, take it away, Mike. Take it away. Well, 